0: turn up the radio and sing along it's time for another great song this is the great song podcast seasons greetings and welcome once again to the great song podcast i'm rob alley i am jp Mosier, and we're here breaking down the greatest songs in modern music history we're going to tell you what makes them great, why we think they're
1: awesome, and why you should too. JP, how you doing today, man? I'm doing fantastic. Just celebrating my birthday. Got, hey, got the greatest birthday gift one could imagine. Wow. It's an autographed baseball. From Bruce Hornsby. What? Yes. Given to me by my best friend, Rob Alley. Oh, that was me. That I was did that. you. What a gift. Man. I literally jumped up and down like an eight-year-old girl <laughs> and was so excited, was high-fiving everybody I could see, running laps, <laughs> threw the baseball up in the air. No, it's an amazing gift. Thank you, Rob, for this fantastic uh, birthday present. Hey, you're welcome, and happy birthday. Hey, thanks, From man. Bruce
0: Hornsby. That's right.
1: Uh Man, I'm so
0: excited about today. You
1: guys don't know what you're about to experience. This is good stuff coming your way.
0: We just got off the phone with the artist and writer of today's song uh, for our first ever extended interview uh, of this kind. And we are so excited today to bring you one of the greatest songs of the 80s, one of the just feel spot songs. Instant feels whenever this song comes on of all time. For me, just instant warmth all over. I feel like I'm being hugged because I'm sad (laughs) instantly (laughs) when I hear this song. I'm talking about At This Moment by Billy Vera and the Beaters.
1: William Patrick McCord, bringing it down.
0: Bringing it down, bringing the sorrow, bringing the emotion, bringing the heartbreak. Let's take a listen. This is At This Moment.
2: I would do at this moment When you're standing before me With tears in your eyes Trying to tell me that you
0: Have found you another And you just don't love me
3: no more
2: What did you think I would say at this moment when I'm faced with the knowledge that you just don't love me?
0: Oh, yeah. So good. Uh man, I, I'm I'm so excited to get to the interview portion. We're gonna truncate our our usual shenanigans
1: here. We got 47 minutes and eight seconds of goodness with Billy Vera. <laughs> That's you don't right. need to hear us ramble. First. I
0: mean, he really sat down, like basically brought us into his living room and said, "Hey guys, just chill. Let me tell you everything you ever wanted to know about this song and 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 the band. Billy's gonna cover. Meet the band. Yeah, he's, he, he's he got ran it all. with it. Oh, I,
1: we started it, and he just he just took it and ran with it. Yeah, we actually started with a Skype call, and he was so cool. He's like I I think I'm getting a little feedback or hearing myself. He's like, let's just call each other. So yeah. we called and just talked and it was yeah. so cool on the home line,
0: got, on, the got, home got, line. on the home the line, the old so, landline. That's right. Uh, we got to give big props, uh, to this one also for Jimmy Fallon, uh, Jimmy Fallon recently covered this song just a couple weeks ago, as we as we record it here, uh, and covered the song with the Roots and just nailed it, just absolutely killed it. And uh, so he and Billy were doing some interaction on on Twitter, and I kind of jumped in there and said, you know, hey Billy, would you be can we would you come on the podcast? And he, you know, immediately was like, yeah, let's do, you know let's do it, let's get together. And uh, so man, Twitter, amazing, right? I mean, shouts out to Jimmy Fallon and uh, and shouts out to Twitter for being awesome. Uh, being a cool way that I can connect with somebody in that way. You you just never know, you know, reach out to somebody and ask them, and they might be totally willing to, uh, to you know, bring you in on something. So um, uh, just a little tiny bit on this song, and then we're going to let Bil- Billy do the rest. Uh, first recorded by Billy Vera and the Beaters in 1981 uh, during a string of performances at the Roxy in West Hollywood and featured on their self-titled live al- album, Billy and the Beaters, Released uh that year on the American subsidiary of uh Japan's Alpha Records. And we'll let Billy kind of tell what happened. The song has a fascinating journey because it did not become a hit in nineteen eighty one. It became a hit uh years later. Um and it's it's got a really interesting story behind all that. Um but uh this is just one of those um I didn't realize, but the beaters were a heck of a band. Like the we're gonna talk a the little bit. The meet
1: the band section, you're gonna be like, What?
0: Yeah. Beaters were a heck of a band, and Billy is a heck of a songwriter. Absolutely, he's got numerous hits throughout the years as both a writer uh, and as an artist. Of course, his biggest hit is this song at this moment uh, as an artist, but he's got number one hits for uh, Dolly Parton and and tons of others. Um,
1: he had a hit in nineteen sixty seven called "Storybook Children" with a girl named Judy Clay, and that was the first inter. So we've read or heard, right? According um, our to research, showed that the the first interracial duo. To record for a major label on Atlantic. Um, That's cool. Just a cool story. Yeah, and they couldn't even be seen on TV together. Um, wow. Because it was, believing, they were more than singing partners, and it was just really uh, wow. really a, a touchy subject there. So, I mean, a pioneer in the music.
0: I was going to say, he's been around a long man, time. He's done a lot
1: of things. And he's
0: done everything. He's written, recorded, produced. He's been in the acting game for a long time now, and you'll hear some more about that in the... Uh, you know, in his, in his interview, uh, he has done it all and, and has included all of that in his memoir, which we'll talk about at the end of the interview. Uh, but I want to go ahead and let you know, you can pick up Billy's memoir called Billy Vera Harlem to Hollywood. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on, uh, it's at your local bookstore. Um, so go check that out if you're a, if you're a fan and, uh, and, and you can get even more detail, but, uh, but we are super, Super pleased to to present you with
1: what's about to happen. Yeah, here. And we and we took notes and did a lot of research, but I think we'll just let him. I mean, I've got a page of stuff, but I, I don't think I can do it near as justice as uh, as, as Billy will. He'll, yeah, he, he can take you down this road and just let you guys sit back and enjoy um, hearing us talk to him and hearing him do actually. The majority of the talking, us just kind of kick starting it and letting him run with it. So.
0: Absolutely. So we hope you guys enjoy this. Let us know. Uh let us know what you think about this episode, what you think about the interview, and and who you might like to hear. Who you know, who can we reach out to next? It's you never know. Uh so who can Jimmy Fallon help us get on the <laughs> show right. next? Uh so so without further ado, let's get right into it. This is our interview with Billy Vera. Hey, hey. There we are. First, I wanted to ask, uh, who are your influences as a writer, as an artist, and as an actor?
2: Well, let's see. Writer, of course, I listened. My mom was a a singer on the Perry Como show in the 50s. So she brought home all the great Sinatra and Nancy Wilson albums. So I got to hear all the great, uh, you know, classic American Songwriters like Johnny Mercer and Gershwin and Cole Porter so I got you know that that was a big influence in learning about song structure and and intelligent lyrics even though I, as much as I loved rock and roll the the lyrics were kind of dumb when I was <laughs> a, in the 50s when I was a kid
0: yeah they were a little soft I to love you time.
2: yes I do you know underneath the moon in June and all that stupid stuff <laughs> so. So, you know, I, 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 I hear a lot of that, but also, uh, you know, as a kid, Chuck Berry, of course, was a great songwriter. And uh, so I, I was influenced by him uh, and his, his rock and roll writing. Uh, and then when I started writing profession- uh, Was really fascinated by, uh, you know, the, the chances he took, uh, you know, and, and uh, the unusual chord changes and, and melodic changes that that he wrote, and, and so that was a that was a, a, a huge leap forward in rock and roll, rhythm and blues music, and uh, songwriting. You know, sure. so he was a huge influence on me. In fact, the first song I ever took to a publisher was very influenced by backrack it was called mean old world and, and at that time uh, you know backrack was fairly new on the charts and and the War
1: That's awesome.
2: And I said, oh, did you get me that girl, Dion Warwick? He said, no, no, she's tied up to Bert Bagdad, but I got you Ricky Nelson.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I said, uh-huh. Ricky Nelson, he's white.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and not a girl.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and so he said, you schmuck. He said, <laughs> "He said Ricky's going to sing the song five weeks on the Ozzy and Harriet show. Wow. Five weeks in a row, you'll make a bundle of money. And so the song became a a, a, a a hit record, and so I thought you know I had a little had a little beginner's luck there.
4: Yeah, no kidding.
2: And then, then so on the, on the at that time uh, the music business was a cottage industry, and uh, so if you had a hit, everybody on Broadway knew knew who you were, uh-huh. or at least knew your name. You had a record on the charts, right? And so it was easier then for me to walk into publishers and, you know, peddle my songs.
4: That's so fantastic.
2: This one publisher gave me a, a job, uh, $75 a week as a staff songwriter. And, and they put me with this fellow named Chip Taylor, who was, about, he, as it turned out, he went to my high school, and he was four years ahead of me and, and a little more established in the business And he was a great songwriter, and uh, and he sort of mentored me. Gotcha. Uh, You know, he wrote songs like "Wild Thing" and "Angel of the Morning." He was a great lyric writer.
4: Yeah. Okay.
2: And uh, so, those were my major major influences.
0: Outstanding. How about how about on the acting end of things? Because you're a very eclectic guy with a with a long uh, career with a lot of different angles, and so you've. You've been an established actor as well as a as a writer and an artist. Who are your Who are your go tos as an actor that you look to? Maybe not pattern yourself after, but uh, you know were influential on your uh, style.
2: Well, I, I I love the work of uh, of Robert Mitchum. Okay, he was very uh, what I call a, a minimalist actor. You know, you could compare him in music to somebody like Count Basie. Sure, you know. Who, Count basically played a lot of notes, but he did. he chose not to. Right, very selective. He just put a plank and a plunk in just the right places. <laughs> and and Mitchum was that way as an actor. You know, he didn't overact like so many you know novice actors do. And so he was he was I think he was. I also liked. Uh, I don't I don't think he. I, I my acting is anything like it, but I loved uh, James Cagney's acting.
4: Okay, sure, you um, know uh what's not know, to not like to, huh? I said, what's not to like?
2: yeah well, he was great yeah so yeah that's kind of it you know uh chip chip Taylor's brother was John Boyd oh and it was and it, yeah and it was John who got me into acting I, I had no dream no desire to be an actor, but but John you know we, we go way back to the beginning of my career and and uh and John was older than Chip, so he, he uh, when, I, when I moved to California, John came into the club one night with his acting coach and saw me singing, and he, he came upstairs to the dressing room afterwards, and he said, you know, he said, I, I've never seen a singer that does what you do on stage, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, most singers manipulate their audience. You know, I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to make you cry. I'm going to make you horny, you know, whatever. (laughs) You know, they decide what you're going to feel. You, the audience. Yeah. And he said, you don't do that. He said, what you do is, he said, you just lay it out there. You know, and and then you let them organically uh, feel what comes natural for them. Mm. He said, and that's kind of what... Uh, you know, my coach here, uh, David Proval, who was later in uh, uh, with Sopranos, uh, he said, that's what David, well, what we work on in, in, his, in his class. He said, you ought to come. I said, oh, John, I don't want to be an actor, man. You know, I'm busy singing.
3: Right.
2: So he, he he could be very persuasive. So he talked me into it, and I went down. And I saw that what these people were doing in his class were really, Doing something cool, so I I, I hung around and I I kept going back. And it took me a while to get to get this method of acting that they were doing. And uh, you know, and when I finally got it, you know, then people started asking me to be in plays, and and then some little TV shows, you know, character parts and stuff like that. And so that's how that came about.
0: Interesting. Well, it's funny that your your career uh, kind of intersects. You know, it kind of blurs this line between a writer, uh, an artist, and an actor when those things all kind of intertwined uh, in the uh, in the release of at this moment. Uh, maybe not the initial release, but as far as uh, when the song really kind of caught on and became popular uh yeah. you know it, it all those things were involved as well and this song has a a really fascinating kind of life story um and and we'll touch on it a little bit ourselves in the podcast but could you just kind of share from your perspective what that journey was like for this song from the from its initial release until uh in the you know in the mid uh 80s when it kind of took off sure well the the
2: the, the birth of the song Came about way back in 1977 when I met this really beautiful young girl, you know, little college girl, 20 years old, gorgeous, and and uh, we we st- we hit it off and we started dating and she she told me about breaking up with her previous boyfriend and how it crushed him and he oh he went off the deep end and, and sadness and emotion and. And so I started writing the song from what I perceived as his point of view,
3: uh-huh.
2: but I couldn't finish it. Usually, I finish a song at most three hours. Oh, wow! But I just could not finish it. So I, I stuck it in my mother's piano bench because I, I had been writing the song on her piano. And um, and then a year later, when she dumped me, <laughs> <laughs> then I. <laughs>
0: You could sympathize a little more. <laughs> You're like, I've got I just the what it takes.
2: Out to the bench and, I, I, and then I wrote that last verse. <laughs> wow. You know, I uh, you know, I'd subtract 20 years from my life and all that.
4: Yeah.
2: And uh, and because I, I really felt maybe for the first time in my life what that felt like to get to get crushed that badly. Mm. So from there. You know, I, I didn't really think the song was commercial. I didn't think it was the kind of thing that would sell because it didn't have a good title. And, you know, it just, it it, it it was, a I knew it was a good song, but I didn't know it was, I didn't think it was, was a, the kind that, you know, the stupid public would buy. <laughs>
3: so,
2: so, but, but people seemed to like it. And, and on the strength of that song, around the same time, uh, You know, I hadn't had a hit record in about nine years. And Dolly Parton recorded a song of mine called I Really Got the Feeling. And it went to number one on the country charts. Mm -hmm. So I was back in showbiz,
3: you know, and
2: and all that. And and I guess as a result of that, and and also the guy heard at this moment, and I was offered a job writing songs uh, for Warner Brothers, uh, but I had, I had to move to L.A. Uh-huh. So I figured, well, you know, nine years without a hit, I guess I've worn out my welcome in New York. Right. So I, I packed everything I own in my car and I drove out here. And, uh, and I started writing songs for Warner Brothers. And around the same time, I ran into my old bass player from New York, who had moved out here three years earlier. And you know, he says, he says, so "What do you do on the weekends?" when you're not writing. I said, "Oh, nothing. I don't really know anybody out here." You know. He said, "Why don't you come down?" And he said, "I play music with some guys down by the beach." And so I went down there, and they were oh, really good musicians. And, you know, we decided to start a band just to meet girls, basically.
0: <laughs> sure. Why does anybody start a band? I mean,
2: yeah, anybody that tells you different is a liar. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did that, and and then the band kind of caught on because it was it was a really different band. You, you know, most a lot of bands at that time were copying uh, the knack. You know, the Sharona and those uh-huh. guys. You know, two guitars, a bass, and a drums. Yeah. And and I had, you know, four saxophones and a metal steel guitar, you know. Yeah, kind of a throwback. There was nothing like that going
4: on. Yeah.
2: And so we caught on, and then finally we start. we went away from the beaches and we came into town, into Hollywood, and we started playing midnights, Monday midnights at the world-famous Troubadour. And that's where, you know, all the hip people discovered us. sure and we became the hottest band in town. I mean, we were selling out lines around the block every Monday night at midnight, the worst night of the week. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would do at this moment in the act, and uh, it, it took us about a year playing there, and, then, and all these guys from record companies kept coming around, and they would be clapping and snapping their fingers, stomping their feet, loving the band. But they didn't sign us because they said you guys are great the best band in town but you're not commercial. Mm. So finally after all those copycat bands flopped right? then they s- decided to start looking for something different and boy we were different. <laughs> so we got three offers in one week. Wow. And, and so we signed with this label and they recorded us live and, and the first record we had out was called I Can Take Care of Myself and it became a you know, pretty mid-sized hit nationally. And then at this moment came out second. By now it's 1981. And uh, the, the the promotion man had a fight with the head of the company and, and so there was nobody to promote the record. So it, it went up to about number 79 and that was the end of it. So then the company goes out of business and, you know, I, I was, we none of the record companies were interested in us. And so, uh, you know, acting became my main source of income at that point. And uh, and then I get a phone call one day about four or five years later, and this guy said, uh, you know, my name's Michael Whitehorn, and I write and produce a show called Family Ties. Up the other night doing the song we said
0: they still do that to this day like if you want a, a re-release well, they, had, they, or... they
2: sold out to Warner Brothers
0: okay, okay. So they,
2: they, he doesn't own the company anymore
0: gotcha but I
2: so I said to him I said well I said how many records do you need to sell to break even he said well we have low overhead here at Rhino and we could probably break even on a, you know a couple of thousand records I said I, I'll tell you what if, if you put out at this moment and uh, Worth of songs, I'll guarantee you 2,000 sales. I could sell them in the clubs over the course of a couple of years if I have to. So he's, you know, and he only did it because he likes me, you know. Sure. He, didn't, he didn't think he'd make any money. <laughs> so he puts this album out, and next thing you know, they use the song on Family Ties again when the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox. Yeah, now
4: it really hurts.
2: And then it went <laughs> crazy. I mean, NBC told us or told Rhino that they got more calls than at any time in the history of the network. Wow, who's the singer? What's the name of the song? Where can we buy it? Is there an album? all that stuff. And this time we had a record out and organically this thing took off. I mean there was Rhino is not in the, as I say they're not in the contemporary music business and they don't even know the first thing about payola or, right. You know, promoting records, it just sold on its own, on the strength of uh, the appearance on the show.
4: Yeah,
2: And so, you know, the thing starts leaping up the charts, you know, leaping over Bon Jovi, leaping <laughs> over Madonna, leaping over all these big artists. Next thing you know, we're, we're number one in the whole country. And, and, and the song was, it's one of those songs that, that you can't really categorize as stylistically. Mm-hmm. So it was on the the pop charts, on the top 40 charts, on the Rhythm and Blues charts, on the country charts. It was on every chart you can imagine. I mean, everybody in every demographic group loved this song. Every age group. I mean, we had kids junior high school using it for their junior high school prom song. <laughs>
3: okay.
2: we, had, we had 65-year-old retirees buying the record.
4: Yeah,
2: You know, I mean, it was just one of those... Rare songs that 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 struck people's emotion across the board, and I, frankly, I don't know why. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't manufacture, you can't contrive something like that. It's just one of those things that comes to you.
0: Yeah. you know. even I remember hearing it as a as a kid. I was, you know, I was born in eighty one. So well, we were both
1: born in eighty one. Yeah, so. uh,
0: and I, yeah. I remember hearing it as a kid, and you know, I haven't had. <clears throat> Excuse me, I haven't had a heartbreak at six years old, you know, but 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 I love the song, you know, it connected with me, and whatever it was that was in there, it got me too. There you go.
2: I remember as when I was about ten years old, there was a song out uh, by a singer, a great singer named k star she she had a big record called Wheel of Fortune. And this song was a French song by by originally done by Edith Piaf, the great French star, and it was called "If You Love Me, Really Love Me." And it was it was emotionally it was a similar song in so many ways at this moment. And I'm telling you, my I was I, I had I had no idea what was what love was at ten years <laughs> old, but the song used to make me cry. Wow, you know, and so yeah. When a song has that magic, man, it, it it crosses every boundary.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: You don't you don't get many of those very often.
0: That's true. It's true. Do you do you consider? Um, we were talking about you know being on being on Rhino as the as the label, uh, but being them being non commercial. Do you consider at this moment and and that album, um, the the by request album? Do you consider that an independent release? Yes,
2: yes. They they were an independent label at the time. They they later sold, as I said, to to Warner Brothers. Uh-huh. But they were an independent label, and and when the thing took off, they made a deal with capital to distribute it, so that they could have okay, you know, nationwide distribution.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So I, you know, we were talking about that in the in the light of that, it seems like you know now a lot of uh, a lot of acts might call themselves they might label themselves as indie rock or you know independent whatever uh, but yeah. but what they're really talking about is kind of a sound or a feeling not the fact that they don't have a record label uh, but <laughs> uh, but but uh but we were talking about that this is is one of the most uh enduring independent releases that we can think of uh, you know there's not much out there that you can say You know this was this was released, you know that long ago without the strength of a major label behind it, and people are still singing it. You know, thirty five, you know, almost forty years later at this point. Well, yeah,
2: just a few years ago, Michael Bublé recorded this song.
0: Yeah, and
2: he and he sold about ten million albums.
0: Wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's really, that's just really amazing, but it speaks to the, the strength of the song itself, that without the, like you said, without, you know, any help from Payola or a major marketing campaign, anything like that, the song just grabbed people and has kept them, you know, for all this time. Uh even yeah.
2: and you know, two weeks ago Jimmy Fallon sang it on his on the Tonight Show.
0: Yeah, and and that's actually what he really did. It. I mean, I thought you know, I always I always see things like that and I go, Oh, this could be okay or this could be really bad but I never expect it to be spot on. But he really no. did and the roots
2: Because very few people many people have tried to sing that song and most people fail. Because they what they do is they they over emotionalize it. Uh-huh. you know they, they they try to get real melodramatic and and, and it makes it sound fraudulent yeah. you know fake and and Jimmy didn't do it. he just did he sang a real honest a, a real honest uh, I don't want to say copy of my version, but it was a copy
0: of my version right, yeah. but he did it
2: perfectly yeah. he, he, it was wonderful and I, I tweeted him and and, uh, and and told him so.
0: And that's how that's how I got the idea to connect with you. I connected with you over Twitter for you know originally uh, about an interview because I had seen his clip and loved it so much, and then I saw you guys interacting on Twitter um, and I thought, man, I'm gonna reach out and just see you know if I can if I can get in touch with Billy um, so I, so now I, i'm I'm telling my friends I'm interviewing Billy Vera, and they're like, oh cool how did you how did you do that?" And I said, "Oh through Jimmy
2: Fallon, you know <laughs> of
0: course." Well, I was so
2: happy that he did it because he's been threatening to have me on the show for the last two or three years.
1: (laughs) Nice. And I just happened to be watching Family Guy at the time and saw Brian the dog (laughs) try to do it. I was like, like, wait a minute. (laughs) Sure, Rob, it's a sign.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the song that will not die. (laughs) You know, the funny thing I want to mention is that, you know, one of of the, the things that Chip Taylor taught me way back in the day was he said, he said, remember, don't always, don't try to write trendy songs for today. Right. He said, try to write songs that you could picture people singing 20 years from now. Yeah, And he said, because that's where your real money is.
4: Absolutely. And
2: it was great advice, because here I am, you know, 50 years later almost. Well, not 50, but 40 years <laughs> later, and that song is still earning income.
0: Yeah. is I was going to ask you, is... Is of you know, of, of your catalog of songs that you have written and pitched and, and, and people have cut or you've sung yourself, is this the one from your catalogue that you thought people would still be singing almost forty years later? Or is there or is there another song that you have in you know, still in your back pocket somewhere that you thought, man, I can't believe this one never took off like that?
2: Yeah, there's a, I mean I, I, I try not to judge my songs commercially. I sure. mean, the one I wrote that Dolly cut. I was trying to write a, a commercial song, uh, not for Dolly, but for my friend uh, who was a great songwriter. He wrote Tie Yellow Ribbon, a big mm-hmm. songs, Larry Brown. He was going to produce Nancy Sinatra. And he said, I need a." And he said, it was the last minute. He said, I need a song for Nancy. You got anything? I said, No, but I'll, I'll you know, he said, uh, let's write something. And he said, well, I can't write it with you now. i got to go pick up my wife at the hairdresser. <laughs> he, said, he said, but start it and we'll finish it when I get back. Well, I knocked it out in 20 minutes. Wow. And, and, I, and I purposely was trying to write a real catchy melody that, 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 that anybody could sing. And, and of course, he, I, he came home and he loved the song and Nancy hated it. <laughs> so I made, a, I made a demo with this other girl. And uh, I took it around, and and, and uh, eventually I got uh, I got Dolly on it, and, she, and Dolly did a great job on the song, and of course, it, as she always does. But so that you know, usually I, I don't. But usually I don't. I don't do that. I don't try to write with with sales in mind. I just try to write something that's good,
4: right?
2: You know, it has artistic merit. You know, or, or I try to write songs that that sound different. You know, that have something. Something that that makes the the the, the, the listener uh, snap their head
0: to turn around. What was that? You know. Yeah. What, what did he do there? Yep. And for me on this song, the that that thing, like it's a great song all around, and and the lyric is good, and it's very honest and kind of raw. The the thing for me on this, and I, I usually in in the course of our podcast talk a little bit about the music theory behind a song, and you know, I'm kind <laughs> of a I'm kind of a theory nerd. Um, but uh, the thing that grabs me on this song, and it, it happens repeatedly, is that uh, that flat nine that you've thrown in in the melody, which almost never gets heard, especially in pop music now. That never happens. But on that, mm-hmm. you know, on that fourth, uh, on that fourth chord. I guess we're in B flat on the song. Is that right? Um, it's in uh, G flat. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. G flat. Okay. Uh, G flat. So that would Sharp. be. Uh, yeah. So, so on that fourth chord, it becomes kind of an uh, an E flat with a flat nine chord. That with tears in your eyes, that's just oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the note that grabbed me. Like that's the note that made me turn my head and go, whoa, you know? Oh, it's, interesting. It's, that's interesting. I guess that's just you know because I, I I've
2: done a lot of blues singing over the years, and so it's kind of a bluesy note.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things that is just. It's uh, you know it's a little dissonant and it just kind of just as far as melodically grabs me every time. That's the note I wait for. You know that's where the uh, emotion is for me melodically on that song. It just kills me. I just love it so much.
2: Yeah, you know what I, I think. What I hard to remember, but I think what I was trying to do with that first those that first grouping of chord changes there. I, I was trying to do something a little Motownish, but instead of a fast song, make, do it as a ballad.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, And, and, and you know, years later, I, I was uh, performing uh, at a salute to American songwriters at a big theater here in L.A., and in the audience was uh, the Holland Brothers of Holland Dozier and Holland fame. And so they came backstage and, 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 and befriended me, and, and they, they ended up coming over to my house, and they said, and and the, one of them said, uh, he said, hey, play, play your song, you know. So I played it, and, and, and you know, he said, oh, man, that's what—that's the way we write on the black keys on the piano.
4: Uh-huh.
2: You know, because if you're an F sharp or G uh, yeah, you know, you're playing on black keys, mostly.
4: <laughs> right, yeah.
2: So that was, that, 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 that makes you go, because that's an unorthodox key. Sure. It makes you go to places that you wouldn't go if you were just writing in a key, a simple key like C or G or F. Interesting. It forces it almost forces you to, go to your hands to go someplace
0: different. Yeah, you know that's interesting. That is very interesting.
1: Hey, Billy, something that I uh, this is JP that something that I try to focus on in our podcast is the meet the band section, um, like who played on the on the album and the tracks. Do you remember the exact musicians that played on that track? I've done a little research on my own, but would you wanna expound on that or do you want me to kinda of tell you what I've found and you can tell me if it's accurate? What do you prefer on that? Well those those were the those were
0: the guys in the band, the beaters. Right. Was, was that, can you can you tell us a little bit about a little bit about the beaters, introduce yeah, the
1: beaters to the listener a little yeah, bit? Yeah, tell us a little bit about the about the beaters.
2: Yeah, they were they were um Let's see, the rhythm section was, of course, I said to Chuck Fiorio on bass. He, he had played bass with me uh, uh, before he, you know, back in New York. Mm-hmm. And then he introduced me to most of these guys. And uh, the drummer was a fella named Bo Siegel. And uh, and on guitar, and that was George Marinelli, who later played with Bonnie Raitt. Uh, and on piano was a fella named Jim Anger. And uh, he's sort of fallen off the map. I don't know. He was really good piano player. I don't know what ever happened to him. And then the, 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 the Jeff Baxter was on Pedal Steel. Oh. Yeah,
1: Scott you Baxter, know? yeah.
2: Yeah. And then the horns were Jerry Peterson, who took the the alto sax solo, uh, that great emotional solo
4: that, that,
2: uh, that's in that record. And then there, the others were Lon Price and Ron Viola. And Brian Cumming, and that was the band at that at that time.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I was I was thinking it was funny. Jerry Peterson that played on there. He also played on a uh, Kim Carnes' "Mistaken Identity" album, which had Betty Davis. Yes, eyes. he did,
3: he, he, and
1: he toured with her. Yeah, and that was the number one song for six weeks in '81. So he was competing with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's partly his. <laughs> that's great.
2: Yeah, and, and of course, Chucky had played with Phoebe Snow before he came to L.A.
1: Okay. Yeah. Juice and
2: juice Newton. had well, played uh, with a bunch of people. I can't remember who right now. I
1: think Tanya Tucker and Al Stewart who I had on that.
2: Yeah, Tanya I think Jerry Peterson played with Tanya. Um, uh let's see, Ron Price had played with uh oh a bunch of people he played with Elvis. Uh Tom Jones, uh he had played with uh, Professor Longhair. He played on the the LaBelle album that,
0: that Lady Marmalade came from.
2: He's on that. Wow. So yeah, these guys have been around the block.
0: Yeah, quite a a, a distinguished group to say the least.
2: Yeah, we'll be, yeah. Me and uh, Rat- Lon is still with me.
1: Really? That's awesome. 30,
2: Thirty-nine
3: years later.
1: You know. Wow. Well, me and Rob are both big Bruce Hornsby fans, and so we were very familiar with George Marinelli, and I. Yeah. Was, and we talk a lot about him on our on our Bruce Hornsby podcast and and other things. So. Yeah,
0: I, I popped big when I heard when I realized I, I did not know until we were uh, researching here that that uh, that George had, was part of the Beaters. I, I thought that's great.
2: Yeah, he was an original Beater, and he, he, he's a very funny guy, very comical guy.
4: That's great, and of
2: course, you know, Bonnie cut a song of mine called "Papa Come Quick on her biggest album, yeah um and and uh, i I don't know if George was on that record i know he's he's i think he joined the band shortly after that, if I'm not mistaken,
1: yeah, he's touring with her now i saw I saw her last year, and he's he's still playing with her, so. He was.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a pretty long gig.
0: Right, yeah. No kidding. That's not one you get very often.
2: Yeah, now the way that song uh, it almost almost didn't get recorded, uh, that, that Chip and I wrote that with uh, my later guitar player, Ricky Hirsch, who was in a band called Wet Willie before he was <laughs> a beater. Okay. And uh, so after Bonnie had Nick of Time... Yeah, that was her, that was really her first, she had made 15 albums on Warner Brothers and never really made any money
4: Yeah.
2: And as as recording artist. And so she switched to Capitol and she had Nick of time and she won all those Grammys. And yeah. she called me up one day and she said, man, I they want me to do another album. And I you know I don't really write a lot of songs and you, you, you got any songs for me. So I, I liked the way she sang ballads. And so I, I I put together a tape with like two or three ballads I had, and my friend that I produced Lou Rawls with, uh, he his wife overheard the conversation that that he and I were having, and she said, "Well, put that little Cajun song on there." <laughs> I said, "I said I don't know, man. I said it's from a male point of view." You know, uh, song's written and and you know it's about it's about you know a redneck family and <laughs> I don't know that Bonnie can relate to people like that. You know, <laughs> her her audience is pretty liberal. You know, and uh, so she said, "Well, no, put it on put it on the tape." She, well, as it turned out, there was a slot open for an up tempo song.
4: Yeah.
2: Because she already had that great ballad, I Can't Make You Love Me, which, yeah. for my money, is one of the greatest female uh, vocals of, of all
1: time.
0: Absolutely. We're, we're covering that song in the near future. We're doing
1: that one next. So. Well, great, up, great. Well,
2: not well here, here's, here's, mm-hmm. a little, here's a little tip for you on that song.
1: Oh, absolutely. Please, we'll take it. yes. We'll take anything you got.
2: Listen to Aretha's song, Ain't No Way. Okay. Okay. And you'll see that story-wise, it's the same song.
1: Oh wow!
2: Rita goes, "Ain't no way for me to love you if you won't let me." Huh? You know? Wow! And that's the same same idea as, as uh, the song that Bonnie sings. Well, so anyway, so so I brought Bonnie loved the song "Papa Come Quick,"
3: uh-huh.
2: and she said, "Man, I want to record it." You know? And uh, she said, "There's, there's." there's this one word in there that I think my my audience will get offended by. You know, because there's a line in there. It, 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 it must have been that wine-eyed, silver-tongued there.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. A, not going to get away I with that one anymore. It's a not very nice
2: word for a Mexican person.
0: Yeah. But, but,
2: and she said, I understand that the character in the song would talk like that. Right. You know, that it's, so it's authentic. Right. She said, but I, I you know, I said, well, uh, okay, change it to Schemer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rhymes
0: that's a little safer, name. yeah.
2: <laughs> so it was a safer, safer word, and she, she liked that. So I figured, okay, great, I'll, we're on the record now. So then she calls me about a week later from the studio itself, and she says, man, I'm over here trying to record the song, but I, I can't get my band to play with the same feeling as your demo was. Oh, I said. Well, that's just because it's just me and Chip and Ricky, you know, on the you know playing in his living room, and you know, uh, you know, your band is probably too good. You know? Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be dumb. Right. And and so she said, "Well, can you come over and, and help out?" So I I grab my Telecaster and I I hop over there, and go over to the studio, and 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 I had the band play it down for me. I said, "Yeah, you guys are playing too." too good. I said, drummer, I said, just play thump, thump, thump on the bass drum, but don't play anything else. And and I told the bass player the same thing and then I I played my little dopey my dopey lick on the (laughs) telecaster and 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 it worked out. You know, and so finally, thank God we got on the album. And so I was recording I was producing Lou Rawls at the time who was on Blue Note, which was a subsidiary of Bonnie's label, Capital. Okay. And so I said to the boss at Blue Note, and I said, oh man, I'm so excited. You know, you know, Bonnie's just recorded one of my songs and she just sold three million records with Nick of Time. He said, well, don't get too excited. He said, Nick of Time was a fluke. he said she'll probably do about 400,000
4: copies wow no way and uh, I said I'll take it I'll take it yeah so well as it turned out our album ended up selling
2: 5 million you know it sold more than Nick time man so you know she had another fluke (laughs) yeah right
0: exactly one of those 5 million selling flukes yeah
2: but but it just shows you the record company didn't have faith that she was going to do it again
0: you know wow that's something. I feel
2: like but she did. <laughs> yeah, but she did.
0: Yeah. One of those another one of those uh, you know, got it on the 16th album Overnight Success Stories she became. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, you you've had <clears throat> we'll, we won't we won't keep you much longer. You've been so generous with your Thank time you and so we're super grateful. Time. Um I just want to ask you uh, just a couple more things. I, I just want to get your perspective here because you've had such such an interesting career. Uh, I feel like you probably have a unique perspective on the quote-unquote business. Uh, you know, what is what are some of the things that you've taken away from the business over the years and in your many roles as, you know, writer, artist, producer, and even as an actor? Just about the business in general, what are some things that you, you know, might be able to share with the audience that, that would be of, of interest?
2: Well, the business has radically changed over the years. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not the same business, and and, and what the things that you have to do today are. Wait, I mean, I I wouldn't even know where to begin today. It's that. It's that different.
0: Yeah, it's almost. It's almost a. um, You know, there's. It's almost to the point in certain areas where record labels kind of are out of, uh, can be out of the loop if if an artist, you know, if a YouTuber cuts the right song and they self distribute it, put it out on iTunes, you know, it can catch on and, and become a hit, and, you know, no record label has ever even been involved. And what
2: I'm being told is that, that a, a more surefire way to, to make money today is getting your, mu- your music to music supervisors, the people that pick the songs for TV shows and ah, TV commercials and movies.
1: That makes sense. It, said, it worked for you. It helped you. <laughs> um, so uh-huh. It certainly helped you get a a shot in the arm there on the Family Ties gig. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, apparently radio means less and less than it ever did.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, today, so that's what they're saying. But you know, some of the you know people say, "Well, you got any advice?" Yeah, and I said, "Get a real job, kid." You know. <laughs> but but it all goes back to what my mother told me. Uh, she said, she said, show business is peaks and valleys. You know, one year you'll make a bundle and the next year you'll make nothing. And so always live below your means.
4: Mm. Yeah. You
2: know, because a lot of people, they they, they, they make that, first, they get that first hit, man, and they're buying a house for their mother, and right. you know, buying a big car, and, and you know, the whole deal. Yeah. And, and the next thing you know, they're broke and and uh, you know the reclaim company has taken away that car
4: right
1: you know it,
2: and, and it it happens over and over again to performers yeah. you know and, and so that was the best advice
1: I ever got and that's good advice Thanks, but Mom. that'll that'll last all generations like that that <laughs> advice will carry it carried your mother carry you, you it'll carry you know rob's kids our kids yeah. <laughs> and on to the into the future yeah. Yeah. i i have one... I have one question that I ask everyone, so I'm just going to throw it out and tell me your your thoughts on this. What, okay, you go into you're on tour. You go into a gas station. What is your candy bar or junk food of choice? What do you what do you pick? What do you get?
2: Well, I'm a I'm a I'm a Pepsi man. You know? Okay. A, I love Pepsi, not diet. In <laughs> fact, now they, it's as if my dream came true. They're starting. They've started to make. Uh, Sugar. It's yeah. real sugar, yeah. That's, okay. that's that's the deal, man. I mean, I, I do three of those a day. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah.
0: Outstanding. But, well, uh, I know you've got you've got a memoir, uh, and I want to make sure you get a get a chance here uh to tell the people a little bit about it. You've been so uh gracious to share a, just a little sliver of your story with us today. Uh, but tell the people a little bit about your memoir and where they might be able to find it.
2: Well, it's called Harlem to And the reason for that title is because I first became known uh, playing the world famous Apollo Theater in Harlem, and uh, and then I moved to Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so that's the title of it, Harlem to Hollywood, and it's available if not at your local records, uh, radio, uh, bookstore, it's (laughs) it's on Amazon. Okay. So, and, and I'm proud to say, I happened to notice the other day, you know, I went, I went to the page, the Amazon page that my book is on, and I happened to notice, you know, where they have the customer reviews below. Uh-huh. It's the only book I've ever seen where every single review is five stars. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I must be better than I thought I would. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome.
4: Bad in a thousand. <laughs> yeah, man. So, <laughs>
2: So yeah, go get my book, man. It's it, it, it's it's not just about me, but it's about uh, you know. It, it, it shows you what what it's like to be a guy trying to trying to make a living in show business and and, and the different things that, that that one does that I did. And uh, people seem to really enjoy it. I tell you, I get a lot of people, you know, writing to me on on the website billyvera.com. stuff, and just tell me how much they enjoyed the book, so tell everybody,
0: go get that sucker. Yeah. Outstanding, absolutely, go get it, Billy Vera, Harlem to Hollywood, go get it at Amazon or your local bookstore, and uh, Billy, you've been so gracious with your time, we can't say thank you enough for coming on this podcast with a couple of nobodies uh, to just hang out for a few minutes and and, and enrich, us, uh, enrich us with some of the details on the life of this song at this moment and, and your career, um, I, we're just... It, incredibly grateful uh, for your time thank you so so much for being with us
2: well thanks for having me boys you know, every, every little bit helps good luck with your show I, I hope you do well
0: with it absolutely and thanks to Jimmy Fallon for getting us together
2: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> thank you so good much old Jimmy yeah good old Jimmy that's what I'm going to call him from now on uh, <laughs> thanks so much and uh, all the best and, and here's hoping for many more uh, years of, of fruit from all your labor thank you buddy Thank you so
2: much. All right, fellas, talk to you.
0: All right. These days. Thank,
2: Thank you. you
0: bye bye.
1: Bye bye. Man. So yeah, that just happened. That just that happened. just happened.
0: We just I, we're we're still in shock over uh, over the. Over the Amount of time we just got to spend with Billy Vera. Uh, big deal for us. We hope you guys have enjoyed this, uh, this episode. Um, and uh, we you know hope to do some more of this in the future as our global podcast <laughs> empire continues to grow. And we dominate the charts as we do every week here on The Great Song
1: Podcast. We are still our favorite.
0: We are our very favorite <laughs> podcast here. Uh, and so that's just such a huge get for us. You know, just an amazing experience to be able to talk to Billy on the phone, uh, especially for that length of time. We thought we might get 10 minutes with him. We were like, uh, yeah,
1: maybe we can get five or 10 minutes, and yeah. 47.08 later, we're yeah. like, this is still happening. <laughs> yeah, we high-fived each we're other. We we're hands. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, it was amazing. So uh, anyway, we... We we uh man we're just uh, we're buzzing yeah that's that's bottom line we're buzzing so um,
1: let's send him out with a song let's,
0: man let's yeah let's let it you know what how about that sax solo let's yes. take it let's take it from
1: the sax solo here's a Jerry Peterson bringing it
0: bring it Jerry take us home we'll see you next week on the Great Song Podcast I'm Rob I'm JP go listen to some music
2: if I could just hold you again. the ground that you walk on, baby, if I could just hold.